Welcome to Broadway World's Some Like It Pop Podcast. I am Matt Tamanini, Broadway World Senior TV and Film Critic. And as always, I am joined by the brains of our operation, Broadway World TV's Los Angeles Bureau Chief and Soldier in the Seven Line Army, Jennifer McHugh. Jen, how are you doing after your trip to San Diego yesterday? I'm doing okay. My voice is a little uh, boozy. It sounds like I've been up in a jazz club all night, but uh, it was a great day. <laughs> it's like I'm doing a podcast with Demi Moore or something. <laughs> you can follow Jen and all of her smoky goodness on Twitter at EpineQ. That's E-P-O-N-I-N-E-Q. And you can follow me at BWWMatt. That's B-W-W-M-A-T-T. And you read us both across various Broadway World sites. And you can follow both of us collectively on Some Like It Pop's Twitter handle, at S-L-I-P Podcast. And tweet us what you think of the show, tweet us what you want us to talk about, and uh, maybe we'll respond to you if we ever check. Not only can you find all episodes of Some Like It Pop on BroadwayWorld.com, but you can also get new episodes downloaded automatically via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Also, if you don't hate us, rate and review the show so that Jen and I have something tangible to fill the holes where our hearts normally would be. On this episode, we are taking a look at this year's historic Tony nominations through the eyes of theater lovers who have seen a combined one show this theatrical Broadway season. Then we will chat about superheroes and kidnapped cats before we wrap up the episode with show and tell and a quasi announcement, major announcement. I'm not sure. We'll see later. Jen, we are recording on Sunday, May 8th, Mother's Day. You live on the opposite side of the continent from your mother. And even though I live uh, about a half an hour away from my mother, she is in Ohio visiting her mother. So you and I are stuck together today. But... We both had rather adventurous Saturdays. Do you want to give the listeners a quick recap of what your Saturday entailed? Well, I do know our listeners love when we gush on about our sports <laughs> fanaticism. So I drove down to San Diego yesterday. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Los Angeles to go see my beloved Mets play in San Diego because the Mets fan club, the Seven Line Army, was making an appearance, and there was going to be 1,400 Mets fans there. So there's a blanket of orange in the outfield. And it was an excuse not to go to Dodger Stadium, which I always have to jump on. It was a day of history as our 43-year-old pitcher, Bartolo Colon, hit his first Major League home run. And I know you're like, oh, that's impressive. No, you don't understand. He is... What weighs what? Like 250 pounds? At least. He is is one of the most out-of-shape athletes you've ever seen, but who is still one of the best at what he does. Seriously an amazing pitcher, not the the spryest of them, but he is beloved by the Mets. Um, His nickname is Big Sexy. There is a big um, printout of his face in the outfield. Everyone was wearing Big Sexy shirts. And, man, when that ball went out of the park, I I thought the stadium was going to crumble. But it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It was completely worth the drive. It was completely worth driving an hour towards San Diego and realizing I had forgotten the tickets and had to go back. Oh, no. We don't need to talk about that. (laughs) But it was one of the best nights of my life. Well, I spent between playing baseball and coaching baseball and softball at the club, high school, and collegiate levels – I know the baseball and softball swing pretty well, and that swing that he used to hit that home run was not one that you would normally associate with hitting a major league home run. So clearly, no, the, it defies all logic. Yeah, clearly, the baseball gods were with Bartolo Colon yesterday. But anyway, congratulations on the win. Thank um, you. My Saturday was kind of interesting. Like I said, my mother is in Ohio this weekend, so my dad was all alone. So I conned my dad into joining me for a few uh, father-son bonding. Uh, events yesterday. For years, I've been listening to Pop Culture Happy Hours, uh, Glenn Weldon talk about Free Comic Book Day. And since I was only a quasi-superhero-y fan at the time, I thought, hey, that's cool, but it's never something I participated in. As you all know who are listening, I've recently kind of gotten into comic books, so I decided that I was going to go to Free Comic Book Day this year. And when I realized that it was going to be on the day before Mother's Day and my mom was out of town, I convinced my dad to go with me. Because he, he had told me before that he had never been to a comic book store in his entire life. So, um, yesterday morning, my dad and I met at a local comic book store, which is quite large. And we went in, and here's here's the catch on why I really took my dad. is On free comic book day, this comic book store was letting you pick four free comic books out of the ones they were offering. So I picked four, then I told my dad which four that he should pick so that I could have all eight. So we went, and it was a really fun experience. Then we went back to his house, dropped off the cars, and went together to downtown Disney, or Disney Springs, whatever they're calling it now, and saw Captain America Civil War. So it was a full comic book superhero-inspired day. We're going to talk about Civil War here in a little bit, so I won't go into that. But it was a fun day for me and my dad to hang out, and then 
when my mom gets back tomorrow, we'll do Mother's Day with her and my brother and sister and their families and everything. And so it should be a, uh, a fun Mother's Day. But it was a good Saturday. It really was all yeah. around on both coasts. Yes, it was. And there was no <laughs> stopping at Home Depot and uh, having a good Saturday, you know? Is that a, a old school reference that you think uh, anyone will get? No, not even a little bit. Okay, good. No, I appreciate it, but I told my wife I wouldn't drink tonight. Besides, I got a big day tomorrow. But, but you guys have a great time. A big day? I'm doing what? Well, um, actually, pretty nice little Saturday. We're uh, we're gonna go to Home Depot. Yeah, buy some wallpaper, maybe get some flooring, stuff like that. Maybe Bed Bath and Beyond. I don't know. I don't know if we'll have enough time. <laughs> right, as most theater fans know, the 2016 Tony nominations were announced on May 3rd, and not surprisingly, they were dominated by a little show called Hamilton. Lin Manuel Miranda's hip hop masterpiece garnered a record-breaking 16 nominations which is made even more astounding when you consider that it is only eligible for 13 awards. I did a whole podcast about the nominations with James Marino right after they came out. So if you want to hear that, head over to broadwayradio.com. Jen, you're a Hamilton obsessive, as we know. Do you know which show or shows held the record before Hamilton broke it last week? I do. It was the um, producers and Billy Elliot, if I'm not mistaken. You are not mistaken. You are correct. They both tied with uh, with 15 nominations. It's going to be interesting because the producers actually won 12 awards. As we said, Hamilton's only eligible for 13. They got those extra nominations because of multiple actors being nominated in both the Best Lead Actor in a Musical and Best Featured Actor in a Musical. So they can only win 13. I think that's going to be really tough for them to, to break that record. I don't think they even have really a chance to break it. They could tie it, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Jen... The nominations were announced at 5.30-ish your time, and since I know how much you value your sleep, I'm assuming you didn't get up to watch the live stream on Broadway World? <laughs> you of did course, get up and watched it. Of course it. I did, yes. Okay, <laughs> so so tell me what that's like. You get up at 5.30 Pacific Standard Time, and you watch this across the country, hoping that every category someone says Hamilton. Tell me how that helped your, your Hamilton-obsessed heart when you saw the nominations. It was very endearing, especially since Andrew Reynolds was announcing it and he was King George for a bit. He was. Um, but I set my alarm for 525, literally opened my eyes, opened my computer, and the live stream from the website was basically waiting on, I believe it's CBS this morning. Correct. To cut away. So it was basically just people standing around like, in a minute. <laughs> so I just closed my eyes and then I heard them say, and now live, and I opened them and watched them. But... As suspected, you know, we heard Hamilton in every category, and it was very enjoyable. Um, are we going to talk about surprises and snubs later? or? Yeah, if you, yeah, I was planning on it, but if you want to mention a few now, you go ahead. We can we can tease that. I, I think uh, the Groff one was my big surprise, <laughs> the nine-minute yeah, appearance true. by Jonathan Groff. But, um, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I don't. I don't foresee a, a full sweep. I, I think that there's someone else that will win in a major category that we both agree on. And 12 might be tough, too, but I, I have a lot of faith in them. Okay, so let's talk about that. Which which category do you think uh, is most likely that they won't win? I believe leading actress in a musical should yeah. go to Cynthia Ervio in yes. Color Purple. Yeah, I think that's really the one that people are pointing to as good as Philippa Sue apparently is in the show as Eliza. It's not even a, a role that would necessarily be put in the upper ranks of that category just because it, as emotional as it is, it is not a driving force in the show like her competition in that category is. She's got Laura Benanti, who is one of my favorite people in the entire world, and she loves me. She drives that show. Carmen Cusack in Bright Star, the Steve Martin and Edie Burkell bluegrass musical, she drives that show. Jesse Mueller in Waitress, she drives that show. Uh, Cynthia Erivo in The Color Purple, she drives that show. Philippa Sue is a great character but doesn't drive Hamilton nearly to the to the amount that those other women do and those other characters do. So I think that's going to be a tough one to get. The early favorite is Cynthia Erivo, but, I mean, Jesse Mueller and Laura Benanti are previous Tony winners and are very popular in the community, so you never know what happens with those nominations. But you're right, I think that's going to be a tough one. I also think the choreography one might be tough just because as good as Andy Blankenbuehler's uh, choreography is in Hamilton, and we've all seen videos and we saw the performance on the Grammys. He is up against one of the icons of tap dancing and that's Savion Glover with Shuffle Along. That's going to be an interesting battle between those two because they are so different stylistically between what they were trying to do with their choreography and apparently 
shuffle along has these huge Broadway names, Brian Stokes Mitchell, Billy Porter, Audra McDonald, who are not known as dancers, dancing the hell out of some tap. So I think it's going to be interesting. That'll be a fun one, too. You know, the technical ones, that is not, Jen, neither my or your area of expertise. So who knows on that? But it is going to be tough to get 12. But I think I think I know you'll be rooting for most of them in the, in those categories. I will. And choreography, I'm glad that you mentioned that, is a, a bit of a Sophie's choice because Savion Glover has been one of my idols. I, I believe I've used him as a show and tell in the past, but the choreography in Hamilton, and granted, I'm very, very biased. No. <laughs> but what he's done with it and choreographing to the lyrics and using the ensemble to tell the story, especially during the final duel, using the bullet as a piece of choreography, it's just something you've never seen before. So I'm actually rooting really hard for for him in that category, but I'm rooting against like my childhood hero. <laughs> well, I think I would have to say that just based on the general feeling and consensus, I would imagine that Andy Blankenbuehler is the favorite now. It is only you know a handful of days after the nominations, and these things do have a tendency to to grow and develop and to change as other awards come out, as other awards are presented. So we'll see what the feeling is before the Tonys. We'll be doing an episode around the Tonys before or after. I'm not sure we haven't decided yet, but it'll be interesting to see. That's one that could be the decider in terms of whether or not Hamilton ties the record or not. The only other one I wanted to mention, and granted, you know I love all aspects of it. Um, Tommy Kale was on Seth Meyers the other night. He's adorable. <laughs> but I really, really, really enjoyed the lighting. So mm. as far as tech goes, I mean, I've, I've run lights before. I've set lights before. But for something to be that outstanding in an already outstanding show, you know, that's one of the ones I'm really going to root for is the yeah. lighting. Yeah. Howell Binkley is nominated for the lighting design for Hamilton. And that's one where it's it's really interesting because he's up against um, the lighting designers for Shuffle Along, for Spring Awakening, and for American Psycho. If you've seen some of the clips, the B-roll for for American Psycho, or the performance they did on the Colbert show, it's a very techno-y based show, EDM type music, very 80s club type music which generally has a lot of interesting light stuff going on. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not that show gets some some love from the Tony voters. It only had two nominations, and the lighting is one of them. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how kind of those more technical awards play out in Hamilton. Now, we want to get into some of more of these nominations. On, on the heels of the Oscars So White controversy, it was really cool partially because of Hamilton, to see that 14 of the 40 acting nominations went to people of color, and women and people of color were represented in all of the writing categories. Now, when you say 14 out of 40, that's still not a lot. When you think about it, that's, in terms of the demographics, not only of the country, but of what Broadway generally is, that's a pretty good number, and it's pretty impressive on the strength of shows like Shuffle Along, of Hamilton, of Eclipsed, which is one of the best play nominees, which is written by Jen, a member of the cast of The Walking Dead, Denai Guerrera, and mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure we'll, we might talk about here in a second. But and then, you know, there, there's there's some really cool stuff happening on Broadway. It's a very eclectic season, a very diverse season, especially then you throw in the show like Waitress, which I mentioned, which features uh, music and lyrics by pop star Sarah Bareilles. It is the first Broadway musical of multiple a multiple person creative team that is completely women the the director is is diana paulus sarah borellis wrote the music the book is uh, is written by a woman the choreographer is a woman it's a milestone in a lot of ways because it is still a male dominated world especially in the musical theater scene so it's very cool to see that also, you know, Steve Martin is nominated for uh, Best Original Score for Bright Star, along with his writing partner, Edie Burkell. It's a very interesting set of nominees. And then you throw in, like, Julian Fellows is nominated for writing the book of, of School of Rock. Now, he's no stranger to Broadway musicals, but he's the guy who created and writes Downton Abbey. So it's kind of interesting to see someone like that coming back to the theater. So it's just a, uh, an interesting group of nominees. Jen, what, what jumped out to you? Um, I think more of the things that weren't nominated, there was so much talk about American Psycho going into it, and it only received yeah. two, am I correct? That is correct, yeah. And Bright Star, who it hadn't gotten a lot of talk, at least where I am, I can't speak for, you know, the sure. actual Broadway community, and that came out of nowhere with a bunch of nominations, and I only knew that because I follow Steve Martin on Twitter because, you know, he's a god among men, but... 
I'm really happy for them to get up there. Edie Burkell was a pop singer in the 80s. She's married to Paul Simon, you know, and I love all these professional musicians that are starting to realize Broadway's where it's at. You know, you got Green Day in there, and you got uh, Steve Martin and Edie Burkell and Duncan Sheik and Sarah Bareilles and all these people getting into the Broadway scene. I love it. Uh, yeah, Bright Star was nominated for five. It didn't get great reviews, but I think people appreciated the music and they really liked the performance by Carmen Cusack, who was the best actress that I mentioned, who's nominated for that show in her Broadway debut. But it is interesting. I, obviously, Duncan She has won a Tony for Spring Awakening. But when you see a lot of times, they don't do well in their first outings on Broadway. You see someone like you mentioned, Paul Simon. He wrote a musical. Did you know that, Jen? I did not. It did not do well. That's why you don't know. I know Sting did, and that didn't yeah. do well. <laughs> that didn't do well either. So then you throw in Bono and the Edge with Spider-Man. It, it's a tough thing to do where people who are used to telling stories in three to five minute chunks, to translate that into writing three to five minute chunks, but then telling the story over an entire two and a half hour show, it's a tough transition from being a writer of popular music to being a writer of show music. So I think the fact that Steve Martin and Edie Burkell and then Sarah Bareilles we're able to make that transition fairly seamlessly, especially Sarah Bareilles, who got better reviews for the score of Waitress. Um, we're able to do that well. I think that's really cool. Obviously, Sarah Bareilles is known as a pop star, but she comes from a musical theater background. She was also one of the judges. How I first really came to know her was one of the judges on that um, that acapella show. What was that show called that Nick the Lachey sing-off. hosted? The Sing-Off. Yeah, she was one of the, the judges one or two seasons of The Sing-Off. So she's got a little bit of a musical theater background, but I'm excited to see talented people coming in and writing for the theater because that's not something we've seen. We've seen a lot of actors who are known for their sta- their screen work come in and do work on stage, but we haven't seen a lot of writers, whether it's plays or musicals or the music of for a show, come in and have success on Broadway. But I think that's really cool to see how that's happening. And then you throw in someone like Denai Guerrera, who's known as an actress. Not only does she have Eclipsed running on Broadway now, she also has a play called Familiar running off-Broadway right now that's garnering a lot of off-Broadway nominations for awards. So good for her. Um, And uh, hopefully more really super talented people are able to come and make a mark on the the New York stage as well. Can't forget um, Cindy Lauper either. Oh, right. Yeah. She didn't have any success at all with that show (laughs) called Kinky Boots that won Best Musical two years ago. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we mentioned people coming from other creative popular culture works to Broadway. Um, However, for a long time, there was a feeling in the theater community that to win a Tony, you either had to give a historically legendary performance, which obviously should always win a Tony if it does, Or you just had to be a major movie star a la Denzel Washington or Scarlett Johansson. But this year, there were fairly few screen stars nominated. I guess, you know, Michael Shannon and Zachary Levi and I guess Gabriel Byrne, even though he was nominated for a Tony like 16 years ago already and he's done a lot of stage work. You know, they were nominated, but there are people who are known more for their screen uh, careers. However, there were a ton of screen stars that appeared on Broadway this year that did not get nominated. And some of them have theater backgrounds, too, so it's tough to say they're only screen stars, but that's where they're mostly known for. People like Jesse Tyler Ferguson, James Earl Jones, Clive Owen, Al Pacino, Jim Parsons, uh, Sam Rockwell, Ben Wishaw, Forrest Whitaker, Bruce Willis. Get over to the to the actresses, Kira Knightley, Linda Lavin, Kelly Riley, Cicely Tyson. Then you throw in people like Audra McDonald, Leia Salonga, Jennifer Hudson. These are some big, huge names that normally would just get the courtesy nomination so that they would show up and CBS would be able to market them as being there. They didn't get nominated this year. Jen, what do you think that means? I don't know. I think um, last year was a, a good example of that with Bradley Cooper, who was nominated for The Elephant Man and was heavily favored for in time, the, at yeah. least the press. And then he lost to, forgive me, his name from the Curious. Oh, uh, Alexander Sharp. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big upset. And all of a sudden it's sending this message like, yeah, you can come to theater in New York. It's a lot of fun. You get to work and you get to act every night. But we're not going to hand you an award because there's all these people who don't have Hollywood credits behind their names that are doing just as good, if not better, work than you are. So I feel like New York's getting kind of the cred back that Hollywood tried to steal from them for a long time. Well, there's there's something to be said for really talented screen stars coming and wanting to do Broadway. I think that's great, personally. I would never begrudge someone like Denzel Washington, who has proven over multiple times on Broadway that he is a very capable stage actor. 
that's not the problem. I think the problem that a lot of people had, including Hunter Foster, the year he was in uh, Million Dollar Quartet, and there were a number of people who were giving very competent stage performances that won mainly on the strength, not of their performance, but of their name. And he kind of went off and saying on, he's pretty vocal about things on social media, talking about how giving these people awards just because you think it helps the Broadway publicity machine and hopefully sell some extra tickets or get more big stars to come do theater so that you can sell more tickets. It's really robbing the people who have committed their lives to working on stage from the opportunity to be recognized. And I think, I'm not saying it's a direct uh, causation, but there is a correlation between that sentiment among the theatrical community and how we've seen the nominating committee and eventually the Tony voters respond over the last few years. And I have no problem with with a movie star getting a Tony if they deserve it. I just want to make sure that they're not being given one on the strength of their, you know, their CV rather than their actual onstage performance. Yeah. I think when people are trained in the theater, it's very obvious to um, a lot of these people who come out and start doing TV and, and movies. I work at a local theater in LA and when they're not shooting or when they have a hiatus or something, they're hungry to do theater because they want to keep going. They want to keep that muscle flexed, and they always want to have the option to go back to New York and do stuff like that. I remember hearing, you know, Tom Hanks did a show called Lucky Guy on Broadway a number of years ago, and he got got good reviews and everything. But I remember listening to an interview he did, and he said growing up as an actor, he always heard that – TV, because of the nature of how many episodes you had to turn out, was for writers. Film, because of the nature of doing multiple takes and being able to craft everything, was more for directors. But being on stage is for actors. That is where you are able to be at the top of your game because you get the opportunity to live in that role with no artifice between you and the audience. And I think that's very true. You know, TV is great. Because it's more like you have to know your character because you don't get a lot of time to rehearse it and to dive into it. It's almost a gut reaction to the script and you have to know your character. That's great. Film is great for actors because, you know, you often get to tell bigger stories than you would on TV. But on stage is really where the great acting work is done on a day in and day out basis. So I love the fact that, you know, people like I know you have a number of friends and you all we always talk about it when your friends are on TV shows. Um, but you know them because of them doing 99 seat theaters uh in la i think that's awesome i think the the fact that the matter is most actors started in theater whether that was in elementary school or high school or college or professionally almost every actor has a background on stage so it's not like there's a difference between this person is a stage actor this person is a screen actor it's just where a you get your training or b where you choose to make your living or where (laughs) your living chooses to make you um i guess is often the case as well and we've mentioned it before um, when we point out performances and movies and um, television shows where we're like, before, oh, we really we like... mention it every week. <laughs> <laughs> every episode. Like, oh, that person's so wonderful. Oh, that, that's a Broadway guy. Oh, he started in the West End. Like, of course, they had theatrical training. But I've also noticed in working in theater and out here in L.A., when you don't do theater for a while, we'll be running a scene and a lot of actors will be like, Oh, can I do that again? Oh, can I try that again? Can I do that one more time? Like they just get into that habit of takes on a film (laughs) and to have to actually run through a scene, even if you forget your lines and get out of it, you know, they really like to work on that um, and keep that habit fresh in their head instead of getting used to being spoiled by being able to present it 75 different ways before they get it the way they like it. Yeah. And then letting the director and or editor pick which version of the take they want to use right yeah well jen okay so that's the difference for like actors and and writers i guess a little bit for audiences and critics i i obviously you know write reviews for both tv movie and theater you don't really review a lot of theater but you work in theater you see theater and you obviously review a lot of tv and some movies too as you approach the theater and movies and tv how do you do it differently, either as an audience member or someone who's looking at it critically? Is there something different between how you watch a play as versus a TV show or movie? I do. Having been a director, directing is the first thing I notice when I watch a play or a musical. I notice all these little things that could have been fixed easily. And as a director, I know you can't get in there and fix everything. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be everyone's taste. So I know that. However, when there's something glaringly obvious 
for instance, um, I saw a play once and the, the girl was obsessed with Southern Comfort and she kept drinking Southern Comfort. But the liquid in the bottle was clear. It was water. I'm like, that's such an easy fix. You know, everyone knows that Southern Comfort is a colored liqueur. So just little things like that. And I know it's nitpicky. So sometimes no. it's hard for me to remove it myself and just lose myself in it. But that's also how I know it's an amazing show is if I don't think about anything else but the performance I'm watching. So, um, for instance, I saw Rabbit Hole performed out here starring, oh, forgive me. He was Joshua on Friends. <laughs> Tate Donovan. Oh, okay. And um, I'm not a play person. I'm a musical person. Right. Within 10 minutes of that play, I was lost. I hmm. just fell so into that show. It was horribly depressing. It was so well acted. And a light could have fell on the stage and I wouldn't have noticed. Conversely, I've seen shows where five minutes in, I'm looking at the staging and the lighting grid thinking, oh, you know, it would be really good at this theater. Jesus Christ Superstar. I think <laughs> I would have it start over there. And I just start doing things in my head. So that's how I watch shows. <laughs> I just have to, they really have to grab me right off the bat or I, I'm lost. Hmm. When you critique, like when you write a recap or a review of a TV show, do you not do the same thing? No, it's so much easier for me to get lost into a into a TV show. And the I'm fortunate in the ones that I recap that I really, really like. And I have recap shows in the, in the past where I haven't liked them. And I've even said to you as the editor, like, I am not into these shows anymore. I can't watch them. So, <laughs> do you want to name names? Because I remember that conversation, but I don't remember what shows those were. It was uh, Teen Wolf, which, you oh. know, I think that's justified. Yeah, and, you, uh, you were very much, but that is definitely in your wheelhouse. The It is. Hot, it's young, hot boys running around changing into supernatural creatures. It's so made for me. Anything, but they're just... Any, yeah, anything that has actors with good cheekbones, you're yeah, all about. anything on the CW. But <laughs> I just I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, I watch a show like The Walking Dead where I can delve into character arcs and symbolism and metaphors, and then I go to Teen Wolf. I'm like, well, he's hot, but <laughs> I mean, I just, I don't know. So it's easier for me to get lost in TV shows and movies, which I'll speak about later when we talk about Keanu and okay. the other all right. Well, you know, for me, it's funny because I go back and forth between TV and movies and theater. I, I review a lot of theater down here in Orlando, maybe up to, you know, 30 to 40 shows a year. And to me, I always kind of feel it as I am watching it with two different eyes. One eye is that of a director and one is an eye of an audience member, because I think it's so easy as a critic or just as somebody like you who's not a critic but who has a lot of experience in theater to watch it and, and pick it apart. And I think as a critic, I have to do that. That's my job. That's why I'm there. That's why I got a free ticket is to be able to write about it critically and to say this worked, this didn't work. But, you know, I was having this conversation with somebody else. When I see something, whether it's a play or a movie, and something doesn't make sense, you know, if there's a plot hole, if I think about that plot hole when I'm done or when I'm home or when I'm writing the review and I think, wow, they, they should have really talked about that. If I didn't recognize it in the moment, I don't consider it a plot hole. It was a, it was like a shortcut. It was a storytelling shortcut that didn't matter because the rest of what they were doing compensated for it. So if I'm able to be engrossed as an audience member and that is able to temporarily override that element of my critical observation, totally fine with that. It is tough to be able to maintain both of those. But if you're someone like me who critiques or someone like Eugene who has a, you know, a theater degree and who regularly still works in theater in one form or another, it's hard to, to be able to balance both and be able to balance the, the overall effect of the show and the machinations that make that effect happen. It's tough, but you know, it's, that's what you do if you really want to be a, a, a theater professional who loves theater and enjoys going to theater. It is. And it's also tough having, like you said, with a theater background and working in the theater so much, and then you go to see someone's show just to see Ugh. it. I just don't like it. I hate when people come up to me and say, what did you think? Because I just... I'll, I'll have a 1,200-word I'll I'll review to you by tomorrow morning. <laughs> so what did you think? I'm like, I, yeah, the lighting was good. Um, that's even harder when it wasn't a great production. And, you know... Well, anytime, sure you, lead, anytime you lead with the lighting was good, that's probably <laughs> not a good sign for the play. Oh, I think my go-to is always, uh, you guys look like you're having fun up there. Oh, that's never good either. 
Oh, that was so much fun. Yeah, you guys look like you worked really hard. Um, <laughs> That's awful. But it's hard. It, it is hard. And, you know, I know people are asking because they respect your opinion and sure. they, they want to know what you think. And, and I do have an actual few friends who are like, I, I need your honest opinion. What could have been better? Like what? And we'll talk privately, not not in the freaking great line afterwards, but, you know, afterward, a few days later. Um, but it is hard. And you just kind of have to, <laughs> I mean... We're theater people. We're we're good at lying. We're good at smiling and nothing. <laughs> um, you know, I I applaud your efforts. <laughs> it's always a good one. Yeah. But, okay. Here, here. Let me. I'm gonna put you on the spot. This isn't something we prepared for. What is the best performance, like best show you've ever seen? What's the worst show you've ever seen? Well, I think you know the best. Well, okay. Or do you hey, want like a, a personal, like local? No, yeah. Let's 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 leave. Broadway out of it. It can be okay. tours. It can be regional stuff. It can be whatever. Just leave Hamilton out of it for now. Um, there is a organization in California called CETA, California Educational Theater Arts, and it is a high school drama competition mm-hmm. that I've participated as a judge in for many years. And you're sent to high schools all around the area. You judge it. The top competed. A, it's kind of like the Kennedy Festival in college. So I went to see this production in Culver City, Culver City High School, a few years ago, and they did a production of Nicholas Nickleby. And you hear that, and you're like, oh, it's going to be a snoozer. It was Uh the most remarkable production I've ever seen. I couldn't believe it was a high school. I couldn't believe how professional it was. Um, The entire set was a deconstructed book. Mm. Um, It was remarkable. I couldn't even function that it was so good <laughs> and they okay. wound up winning and going to the competition and winning there nice all right what's your what's the worst conversely <laughs> i won't name the location but Fair. i saw a production of the odd couple done with an all-female cast but it was well that's 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 okay because neil simon actually wrote the female version of the odd couple for broadway so that's in and of itself not a terrible thing I'm not judging them for the casting. I'm right. judging. Or maybe you are, but not else. not the gender of the casting. <laughs> it wasn't the gender. Uh, it was just a bunch of 14 year old girls who had no desire to be on the stage. It was it was brutal. <laughs> That's the best I could do. I just and as when you go as a judge, they're like people are looking at you for your reaction. So you just paste a smile on your face, and you're like, oh dear God. Um, <laughs> but you know they look like they're having a lot of fun up there. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. I'm uh, for me, the worst thing I've ever seen. I, I'm going to give you two real quick. One was I saw it was apparent it was supposedly a professional theater in Atlanta did a production of 1776 and it was just dreadfully awful. But in a more recent thing, I recently reviewed the um, national tour of Dirty Dancing, which is a a play. It's not a musical. There's no sing. I mean, there's a little singing just like there is in the movie, but it's not a musical. It is one of the biggest pieces of garbage I've ever seen. And I don't say that lightly because um, I wrote a, you know, I wrote a review for it. It's up on Broadway World. I'll put it up on the, in the, this episode's article. And it was just horrendous. The performances weren't necessarily bad, although they weren't necessarily good either. Some of them were, were bad, but the way they constructed this show was just so tediously obnoxious that I knew, I knew within minutes that it was going to be awful. And maybe not even minutes, maybe seconds. I just knew right away it was going to be terrible. Um, on the other side, for me, it's really tough for me to pick out one show that kind of was the best. I, I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I, the show that I found the most surprising. And I've talked about this show before, so I won't get into it much. But it was um, a local college production here in Orlando at Rollins College of, of Mackinac, which is a show that I didn't know much about. And, and it's a very impressionistic show about a woman's life in the 1920s and it was written in the 1920s so to be able to see a college production of this very obscure show i mean not that obscure because it recently had a broadway revival but the content is fairly obscure and um, i was really blown away by it so those are probably two that come to mind both good and bad um, from my perspective and i will say and i'm sure you're the same way that i'm more tentative to go see productions of shows that i worship Hmm. So, like, if I see – if I know a local theater that hasn't been known for stellar productions decides they're going to do Rent, I'm like, yeah, I might skip oh, yeah. that because I don't want to see it 
I, I, I'm glad that they're doing it and they're having a good time, but I don't I don't want to see that destroyed. That's true. And I did forget. I, the only show I've ever walked out of was a production of Rent. I, I've mentioned it before. Yes, was, we have talked about that yeah, before. University of West Georgia walked out of their Rent. It's it was just God-awful. hard to watch. You're like, please don't do this to this thing that means so much to me. Well, and that's the thing, too, is, is I generally can find at least something in everything that I see, movie, TV, play, that I like. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to like the thing as a whole, but I can usually find something that I enjoy or I appreciate, whether it's a performance, whether it's a design element, whether it's direction, whether it's writing. I can generally find something that I enjoy, and I can hang my hat on that. It's it's tough sometimes. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny living here in Orlando. We have a robust performing arts community here, but so much of it is in the the attractions in Universal and in Disney and in SeaWorld and all those type of things. The theatrical community is, you know, it, there are highs and lows. And that's why I often talk a lot about the, the, the colleges here is because there are some very good professional theaters here, but they often miss a lot. So I've kind of stuck to a few <laughs> professional theaters here in Orlando and, and really enjoy going to the college ones because I know I'm going to get a solid production, a well-rehearsed production every time where because of the financial situation of a lot of these professional theaters in the area, they only have rehearsals for three weeks or something like that. And they have to turn a show around really quick. And that's not the best way to do a show. So it's tough. Jen, we, we've talked a lot about our theater backgrounds. You, you're you know, college actor. And I don't know if you acted after college at all, but I know you directed a lot. You, you do a lot of stage managing, stage managing. Now, do you have a favorite story from your theatrical past? Um... Well, I was going to mention when we were talking about what you say to people after productions you don't like, and it reminded me of a production we did in college where we had this professor who was kind of a hippie, and he adapted Upton Sinclair's The Jungle for the stage, as everyone's been begging someone to for years. And I just remember the Kennedy Center adjudicator afterwards just kept saying, you guys are very brave. You're all very, very brave. I'm like, oh, God, she hated it. Um, but I will say my favorite, I'm going to go with comedy because that's my go-to. My best friend, Chris, he'll kill me for this. Hmm. Um, he was, we were doing Once Upon a Mattress, and he was the the dumb little prince guy. I can't remember his name. Dauntless. Prince Dauntless, Dauntless. of course. And right before the end of the first act finale, Chris ran into a piece of scenery and he felt a little dizzy, but he's like, you know what? I am an actor. I'm going to power through. And he powered through the first act finale and he hit the last note and smiled and struck a pose. And he was so proud of himself as me and the two choreographers stood in the back of in the theater, horrified as his face was covered in blood. Oh no. <laughs> and he was so proud of himself. And we were like, he looked like a murder victim. But um, <laughs> it was one of the funniest things ever because he had no idea. He came off stage. He was like, we did. He thought he was wiping off sweat. He was covered in blood. He almost passed out. And oh. It was just, you know, live theater. Did did he go on for the second act? Did of you have course, to delay yeah. anything? Okay. He kind of became our local, um, this is an old school reference, Tim Taylor of Home Improvement. Uh, uh, the how The emergency room in the town knew him because he would always come in with the weirdest injuries. He came in with a, uh, a stab wound after um, a scene gone awry and I hate Hamlet. <laughs> and like, he would always come in with these crazy theater injuries and the doctors were always convinced we were on drugs. They're like, why were you playing with swords? Like, no, really, you should come see it. It's a production. I swear. <laughs> well, similarly, one of my favorite stories is when I did theater in high school, I never like asked my parents for help online. They knew almost nothing about, what the shows were until they came. So my first play I was ever in in high school, freshman year, is called David and Lisa. I was playing David Clemens. He's a kid who is basically, he as the play opens, he is packing to be taken to a mental institution by his parents. And I am, as I think I've mentioned on this show before, I'm asthmatic. So I, before the lights come up on the, on the first scene, I'm, you can hear me breathing heavy. I'm, you know, I'm standing there in character, breathing heavy. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And my mother, she is convinced that I'm about to have a, have an asthma attack on stage, and she's going to have to come up and take me out and take me to the to the emergency room in my first ever play in high school. That was not the case. I was I was 
that was a directing thing. That was an acting choice, but I, my mother still cannot live that down. So I, I appreciated the fact that my hyperactive breathing was enough to convince my mother that I was actually dying. And uh, I knew at that point I must be a, a pretty damn good actor. Well, you must be. That's great. <laughs> it was funny. You got to know my mom. But anyway. <laughs> And I could, I mean, I could tell you one of those stories for every single episode we do for the next five years. Yeah, I believe. Well, you've done a lot more theater. And my, my, I had a big hiatus in my theatering from my ending of high school at the age of 17 until I was, for about 10 years, I didn't really do a lot of theater until I started directing. But uh, you have a lot. And I, I think that might be an episode in and of itself at some (laughs) point. Tony, 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 Tony. Ah. What's the matter? Oh, is he all right? He's having a stroke. What? I'm genius! All right, as I previously mentioned yesterday, I spent a uh, two hours and 28 minutes plus trailers watching the new Marvel movie Captain America Civil War. Jen, as you have teased before, you got to see a friends and family crew screening a week or so ago. This is obviously much more in my wheelhouse than yours, Jen, but I want to see what you thought. <laughs> when you went and saw it, I said, don't give me any spoilers, but just let me know what you thought. And I think you just tweeted or texted me a, uh, you just texted me in an emoji of a thumbs up, right? Correct. All right. So give me your, your deeper thoughts on Captain America Civil War. Well, I've mentioned to you before that I'm a little superheroed out, um, but Marvel, like the Godfather, just keeps pulling me back in. And, um, Good reference. Thank you. Of the Marvel Universe, Captain America is probably my favorite series. Uh, I thought the first one was kind of slow because it was all exposition, but Winter Soldier was um, in my top two, if not my favorite, of all Marvel. So I'm a big fan of Bucky Barnes. I'm not going to lie to you and say that it's not physical, but still. Um, so you're a bigger fan of Sebastian I'm Stan than very you are big Bucky fan Barnes. of Sebastian Stan. Okay. But I loved Winter Soldier, so I didn't know anything about this, went into it. I thought that there were parts of it that were very slow, but when they got to the great parts, they made up for the slow parts, if that makes any sense. Sure. Two people made this movie worth it. Hmm. Can I guess? Yeah. All right. Was it, um, was it Black Panther and Spider-Man? That's... Or an Iron Man? You got one right, in my opinion. One right. Okay, so which one did yeah, I get right? Yeah, Spider-Man, I think this kid is He's funny. perfect for Spider-Man. I've ne- never enjoyed Spider-Man's character. Um, I am so looking forward to their take on Spider-Man. He was adorable. He was hilarious. He had the tone completely right. He held his own in seeds with Robert Downey Jr. and Marissa Tomei, and he was hilarious. The other is Ant-Man, Paul Rudd. stole it for me he is in it very little but he has his little comedic sense of no pun intended little he's in (laughs) and then he has a moment i don't know if we're doing spoilers or not but he has a moment where you're just like oh my god it was amazing um but those were my uh my favorite parts and of course um took me like an hour and a half into it to realize that it was the guy from inglorious bastards who was one of the villains um i was trying to place him which we were talking about what takes you out of movies and everything. That takes me out a lot when I can't figure out where I know someone from. <laughs> oh, but yeah. once I well, figured that out, I was good. And I went with my dad, who has I think he's seen some of them, but he doesn't really, you know, he enjoys them. He's not a big movie-going guy, and usually when him and my mom go to movies, she makes him go to, like, rom-com, chick flick stuff. So I had to kind of tell him who some of the characters were. So I enjoyed that, kind of trying to share my, my dorky knowledge. But, you know, for me... I equate Captain America Civil War to like sitting down to a like a 12 course meal and loving every single course from salad to dessert or or, or soup to nuts, if you will. But still, when you finish, when you're done two hours and 28 minutes later, you still feel hungry. Like there was really nothing of substance that I didn't love in Civil War. I, I thought they did a good job of showing that each side of this argument and basically I'm assuming I'm taking for granted that a lot of people who are listening to this podcast know what the basic crux of the argument is, is basically because of all of the destruction that the Avengers battles have caused, which we've seen in all of these movies, 
the U.S. government, uh, along with the United Nations, has decided that there needs to be regulation of all enhanced individuals. And Captain America and his friends say, we can't do that. If we report to somebody else, how do we know that they're not going to order us to do something that we don't believe in. Iron Man, on the other hand, who has had a run-in with Alfre Woodard, who, during a very minor part, explains that her son was killed in Sokovia, which was in Avengers um, Age of Ultron, and he feels a lot of guilt, and he's trying to make up for the times he's let down Pepper Potts, his wife, Gwyneth Paltrow, and so these two face off, and their sides face off. I think that they do a really good job um, about trying to set up that both sides have equal morally and ethically valid points, even if I didn't think that they were fully realized or explained. I think that all of the returning characters were somehow given really specific character moments to shine. I think the new characters were introduced incredibly well. You mentioned um, the new Peter Parker Spider-Man. I think T'Challa or the Black Panther character was fantastic. To me, he stole the movie. Um, he, was, he was played by Chadwick Boseman. And that character's performance was incredibly strong. The, the, he sees his, again, we're going to spoil a lot here, so if you don't want to know, fast forward, I guess. You know, he sees his father die, and this character is really cool. I've, I've recently read the first issue. There's a new run of Black Panther comics coming out written by um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is a huge leader in the in the literary world. He's a MacArthur Genius Grant Award uh, recipient, much like Lin-Manuel Miranda, and he's writing this story, and it's really, really cool to, to see it translate from the books to the to the screen. Not They're not related. This was written after the movie was already done, but... It's a really interesting character, but when you take a complicated story like this where they juggle a dozens of superheroes, I just left wanting more. I felt completely entertained by it, extremely so even, but I was still unsatisfied a little bit. I, was, I wasn't as satisfied as I wanted to be when I left, and I don't know why. It's almost like the, the sum of these great individual parts did not match what I thought it should have been. Does that make sense? I understand what you're saying, even if I don't agree with you. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I just wanted something more. I think everything about it was great. You know, it, it was interesting because we've kind of gotten used to the Marvel movies having a bit of humor in them, definitely more so than DC. The first, if you break this movie down into thirds, the first third has very little humor at all, if any. And that's a lot of the exposition setting up the, the conflict. The middle third has a ton, both with Ant-Man mm. and, and Spider-Man. And to me, the impacts of the storylines of all these Avengers movies has been this habit of, like we said, blowing up big cities and, and turning them into rubble and, and people and civilians dying. And that's fun to a certain extent, but it's become fairly repetitive and predictable. And Jen, we've talked about in one form or another, you know, two of my favorite recent superhero movies that I think we both liked, and they are things that they're movies that did things differently. Both Ant-Man, the movie, we both liked because, well, for a lot of reasons, and then Deadpool, we both liked. And what I think really endeared these movies to me was that they were different from the normal superhero fare. You know, I've said before, but I love that the climactic scene in Ant-Man is this huge battle between two tiny people in a child's playroom. Like they're riding a train, like a choo-choo train around there, and they're using blocks and balls as weapons. I thought that was really captivating because it's not blowing up a city or dropping the city of Sokovia down from miles in the air. And then as funny as Paul Rudd is in Ant-Man, and he is again in, in Civil War, the humor in Deadpool was so different than what we're used to. And I think that's why I love those movies so much is because they were breaking the mold of what we've gotten used to with Captain America Civil War and all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff before. So as they move forward with Phase 3 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this was the first movie in Phase 3, they've said they're going to do things differently. If you've seen the trailer for Doctor Strange, which is Benedict Cumberbatch's introduction to um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it looks a little different, but I'm, you know... I want him to shake it up a little bit. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, it's interesting to talk because you are a fanboy and I am just a, you know. Fan. Fan. <laughs> I, yeah. I have no background going into it and I really, all I wanted out of it was some good battles, which I got, some good humor, which I got, and some Paul Rudd, which I got tenfold. So <laughs> I was I was satisfied with it. Yeah, to me, and I've had this conversation, we, we mentioned Laura Benanti earlier, I had this conversation with her since she is a series regular playing two different roles on Supergirl, 
or she's not a series regular, she's a recurring uh, guest star. But there is something very similar between musical theater and superheroes, is that, in Shakespeare for that matter too, is that characters have to be played, to borrow a term from uh, Spinal Tap, they have to be played at 11. There's a certain level of performance that has to go into that. These are not naturalistic things, whether it's because people have superpowers or they're breaking out in song. It has to be played a little bit heightened. And the best musicals and the best superhero movies are the ones that can take those heightened realities and still make them emotionally impactful. And I think that is where I lost a little bit for this one is because as deeply felt as the motivations of Iron Man and Captain America and their different comrades, for lack of a better term, were, I didn't feel that. And I think that might be one of the things that left me a little unsatisfied. Hmm. Hmm. Speaking (laughs) of a movie that... I think left you satisfied. I haven't seen it yet, <laughs> but I know you were excited about it. Was Keanu satisfying for you? Oh, Keanu was beyond satisfying for me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, I've been looking forward to it for months, as you know, as I, I think may have mentioned the trailer once or twice. Um, Key and Peel, I worship them and I love their show and it's gone now. So, you know, there's a little bit of a deficit in my life. So to see this movie that they're putting out about a cat that gets kidnapped by a gang, um, I couldn't have been more excited about it. And that's literally, you know, the setup. Um, Jordan Peele goes through a breakup, finds a cat, decides to adopt him. He gets kidnapped by this gang called the 17th Street Blips, which are kicked out members of the Bloods and the Crips who formed their own gang. At the Blips. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so they, Peel, Key and Peel, having become very, for lack of a better term, whitewashed in their suburban neighborhood, have to kind of go undercover as uh, gang members to try and get their cat back. There's some great cameos. Method Man plays the leader of the blips. And um, there's some other great cameos that I want to spoil because they come out of nowhere. Right. And, and, of course, the great Will Forte, who has become just a force in everything he does. But... Uh, is it Shakespeare? No. No, not at all. But it is laughs aplenty, and there is a very, very satisfying storyline with the music of George Michael. And <laughs> I think that, that's a little bit in the uh, in the trailer, too. They, they do mention Wham! a little bit. He is, I can't remember his name in the, in the movie, but he is obsessed with George Michael, and one by one starts turning these gang members onto George Michael, and and I don't know about you, but watching brutal, violent battles to the tune of songs like Father Figure, it just makes me really happy. Um, it was so satisfying. If you like Can Peel, a lot of people are like, oh, it's just like one big Can Peel sketch. Well, well, yeah, that's that's what they do. So um, you'll enjoy it. There is one particular cameo that I had heard might be true, and it was true, and I was over the moon happy about right. it. I don't want to spoil it. Yeah, don't tell me. And lastly, it kind of ties into what you were just saying, is that the ending was great because there's actual consequences. You know, it's not, hey, we had a crazy day and went around and killed people, and now we're back to our suburban life. You know, it was uh, it was satisfying that, you know, there were actual consequences for actions across the board, not just the bad guys. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that one. And one reason that I'm really looking forward to it is that so much of the Key and Peel show, the best moments often have to do with some sort of racial politics or some sort of racial identification, whether it's the football introductions or the substitute teacher. There's some sort of identity comedy going on. And I think what you talked about them being very suburban and, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of jokes, but them, you know, being considered more white than black and then kind of going back and forth. We've seen in the trailers them doing some very stereotypical gang member dialects. They do that so well and they do it so intelligently. So that was one reason why I was really excited to see this movie. And it sounds like they pulled it off pretty well. Yeah, it is silly beyond belief. And um, another person in the gang was from Straight Outta Compton. He played Easy E, got a lot of um, oh, yeah. acclaim. I think his name is Jason Mitchell. He shows up in the gang of, of the Blips with Method Man, and he's great. How are you? How are you doing? Nothing makes sense anymore. Are you okay? Maisie broke up with me. Well, it's 
gonna be okay. You're right, Clarence. I want you to meet Keanu. No. <laughs> That's the cutest guy I've ever seen in my life. Heard the use, we are going to end this episode of Sound Like a Pop with a little show and tell where we auditorily show you something and tell you why it fascinates us. Jen, uh, why don't you go ahead and start this week? Well, don't think I wasn't tempted just to talk about Cologne's home run again because I was, <laughs> but I know our listeners aren't really that interested in baseball, so I'll spare you. However, Google it if you can. It's amazing. Matt and I have both made perfectly clear that we are not part of the current obsession that is Game of Thrones. So imagine my surprise last night on Saturday Night Live when I got home at 2 in the morning, and they did a sketch to kind of address that. Last night, the episode was Brie Larson with musical guest Alicia Keys. And the sketch that I am referring to is a scene from a most recent episode where all summer everyone was talking about, is Jon Snow dead? Is Jon Snow alive? I don't care. And in this sketch, (laughs) they're talking about how long it is taking for them to reveal that. It's literally like a mock scene of Game of Thrones. And they're like, Jon Snow is definitely dead. He's definitely dead. Oh, my God, move on. Can we get there? It's just very funny. The (laughs) amazing Kate McKinnon is the uh, person who's trying to bring him back to life. And she's even horrified that it's having to take her so long to reveal what's going to happen that everybody already knows. So um, highly recommend it. Here's a clip. And it's on Hulu. You can watch the sketch. It's the Game of Thrones sketch from Saturday Night Live airing Saturday, May 7th. Move aside. I'm here to see Jon Snow. I heard he's alive again. No, they still haven't done it. He's still on the slab. What? <laughs> okay. Update. I have decided to do my magic. But a warning. It only works if it's done very slowly. Oh. <laughs> First, I must wash his body. That's part of the magic for sure. <laughs> Not yet. And maybe not ever. My magic may not work. This is a real edge of your seat kind of thing. And now, what everyone has been waiting a year to see, I shall cut his hair. <gasps> not yet, Kit. Sorry. And now I throw his hair into a tiny little fire, one strand at a time. Pick up the pace, woman! <laughs> I'm sure they're cutting away to King's Landing or something while I do all this boring stuff. No, 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 they're not. They're staying on us. Yeah, they're showing us this all in real time. Wait, they are? Ay, ay, ay. Abracadabra, you're alive! You know, it's interesting. Saturday Night Live is not the only sketch comedy show that's poking fun at Game of Thrones. As we've talked about before, we both love Inside Amy Schumer. And a couple weeks ago, she did a sketch oh, about God. somehow she got a a role she, on, she, on Amy the show. Schumer. Yes, she, Amy Schumer, got a role on the show. And somehow David Spade was <laughs> directing the episode, which I didn't realize he was a director for Game of Thrones. Um, and then she had to get on a horse, which was really funny. And the horse put a curse on her or something. So between Saturday Night Live and Inside Amy Schumer, there's plenty of Game of Thrones jokes going around, which is fine for me because I don't understand dragons. Amen. For my show and tell, I am going to, and I'm sorry, but you know, my day job is with Broadway World. And so we are taping this the week after Tony nominations. So my whole life has been consumed with with Tony stuff and getting the Broadway World Awards ready and all this stuff recently. So I'm going to stick with something that's very much in my wheelhouse, even though, Jen, I'm going to guess you don't even know that this thing exists. And I don't know that many um, of our listeners will either. But I have started over the past month, I actually started the 1st of April, watching a new show on sci-fi called Winona Earp. Jen, have you heard of this show? I have not. Okay. It is based on a surprising comic book that has been is only they've only run a few series since the mid 90s so it's not like a regular a big one but basically the the premise of the story is is that winona earp is the great great granddaughter of famed wild west marshal wyatt earp and all of the people who were killed with wyatt earp's legendary gun peacemaker come back to life as what are called revenants which if you listen to the podcast lore, their very first episode, which talks about um, vampires, Revenant are very much the original version of, of vampires and zombies. It's actually a 
an old Christian thing. But anyway, so they come back to life, but they are stuck in the town of Purgatory, which is where Wyatt Earp um, killed them. And in every generation, a descendant, an heir in the Earp family, has the ability to use the gun Peacemaker to send the Revenant back to hell. The show is obviously goofy i mean it's a very serious kind of sci-fi drama but it's funny there's a lot of humor there is not a single person in this cast um and i've seen i guess now six episodes there's not a single person that i recognize i think it's a canadian-based show but melanie scrofano plays winona earp and she is fantastically sarcastic um her character has been put in a mental institution because she believes that you know, people can come back to life that her great-great-grandfather has killed. Her sister is played by Dominique Provost-Chalkley, and she's kind of the researcher. She's the willow of the group, uh, so to speak, for Buffy the Vampire Slayer reference. They are aided by the actual Doc Holliday, who, not because Wyatt Earp killed him, but because a witch cursed him, he has come back to life. And there's a overarching government organization who brings Winona Earp into the fold, called the black badge division and it's a lot of fun the dialogue is really really great here's a clip so you can hear a little bit of what it's like some kids inherit money others get talent me <laughs> i got a demon killing gun crazy runs in the family why the chris that gun peacemaker which only i can handle the only thing that can put these demons down again is you is going all wine, no Megan. Good times. Well, if this sounds like a show you you want to watch, it airs on Friday nights on Sci-Fi. It's a lot of fun. It's again, Jen, we've talked about. I don't really get bogged down with the the plot machinations for these for these shows, whether it's iZombie or um, basically anything. I'm more worried about the characters and the dialogue. That's what's most fun for me. I'm not a continuity diehard. Like if something. Oh my God, that doesn't make sense. They said in episode 2.7 that that's, you know, whatever, that doesn't bother me. So it's a little, you know, you kind of follow it around, whatever. They kill a different revenant each week, but they're trying to figure out what the the, the big bad Bobo Del Rey is, is up to. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. It's something that I just kind of stumbled upon, you know, on Twitter. Some comic book thing that I follow on Twitter said, Winona Earp airs tonight, you know, season premiere airs on sci-fi. So I watched it and it's a lot of fun. So check it out if you want. All right, before we get going, Jen and I have a minor announcement, nothing major. As with all TV shows, they run in seasons. Jen and I have been doing this show since September, which is the general beginning of the TV season. Most TV seasons end in May, as we are in now. And even though we consider these our first two seasons, one the first season was in the fall that only aired on Broadway World. Season two was in January when we started airing on iTunes and Stitcher and stuff. This is the basic form of a regular season. We are going to take a little bit of a hiatus, but it's not a real hiatus because we're still going to have episodes. We just won't be having as many over the summer. We will have two episodes a month, a regular episode, and a Listapalooza. The first one is going to be based around the Tony Awards, uh, our first real episode. And then I'm sure we will talk about some of the great TV and movies that come out. I know we're going to want to talk about Rectify Gen, a bunch of the really great movies. And I kind of want to do a special episode about our apparent mutual shared love for General Hospital. I think that would be a really good thing to do. <laughs> okay. Maybe maybe around the nurses' ball time um, in June. <laughs> so I think that would be appropriate. Um, so we're still going to do that. And then when we come back in the fall, I think August is probably a good time so we can get ready for the TV season. We're going to have a little bit of a different format. I think we're going to stick to basically doing the exact same thing we already have, but we're going to start doing some interviews with some theater people who have TV and movie careers as well. And we're going to talk about their TV and movie careers and how it relates to their theater careers and uh, kind of some of the fun stuff that they do when they're not on a New York stage. So it should be a lot of fun. We're figuring out what how we want to do this show, and we appreciate all the feedback we get from folks who uh, tell us what they like and what they don't like and <laughs> what we can do better. And, and more of that, please send it to us uh, on Twitter at SLIP Podcast, and uh, we enjoy hearing from you. So you won't be missing us completely. We'll have a number of episodes over the summer. They won't be every week. But um, if you have a suggestion on what you want to hear us talk about either over the summer or when we kind of come back with a little more of a theatrical focus in the fall or August, let us know. We, we're, we're interested to hear about it, and uh, we're looking forward to talking about some even more interesting stuff. Yay. <laughs> All right. So, Jen, on, on that yay note, why don't you get us out? <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to Some Like It Pop. I'm Eponine Q on Twitter, and Matt is at Matt. Also follow us at S-L-I-P Podcast. That's Some Like It Pop Podcast on Twitter. You can find both of us on Broadway World writing about all of our current obsessions. And until next time, always remember, Led Zeppelin didn't write tunes that everyone liked. They left that to the Bee Gees. <laughs> Okay, so you want me just to say that? If, if you're okay with it. I'm fine with it, yeah. <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs>